I'm George Lavender, one of the producers of Making Contact. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We release a show about a different issue every week, but you can join the conversations happening right now on the Making Contact Facebook page and on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, five years after the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Last season was the Gulf's best tourism season in years. BP has had a lot of commercials, uh, constant commercials on television saying that everything's great in the Gulf. We broke all kinds of records down here on the Gulf. More people, more good times. Showing pictures of sunny beaches and white beaches and healthy sea life and people frolicking. Go golfing, kiteboarding, or build the world's biggest sand sculpture with the world's best sand. Part of that was actually required of the company, which is that they were required to help with renewing tourism uh, in the Gulf states, but the majority of it was, was PR. Brought to you by BP and all of us who call the Gulf home. And those commercials, believe me, uh, very much aggravate most people uh, in the Gulf who are looking out and seeing tarballs and no more oysters and no more fish and no more fishing communities um, and contaminated seafood. And then they see commercials for, you know, everything back to normal in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf is America's getaway, and we are 100% ready to see you. Come on down. That's author Antonia Yuhas. We'll hear more from her later on in the show. But first, let's go meet some of those Gulf Coast residents. Reporter Anna Simonton takes us down to southern Louisiana, where the Homa people have been battling BP and the entire oil industry for decades. It's a chilly morning just after sunrise, and 19-year-old Beau Verdan is guiding a flat-bottom boat down a bayou in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. On board with him are his grandfather and uncle. The Verdans are members of the United Homa Nation, a Native American community on Louisiana's Gulf Coast. Like many Homa families, the Verdans have lived off of what they catch for generations. But that's changed in the five years since BP's Deepwater Horizon disaster. You see a lot of animals with oil, oil on them. And the, you see fish dying. If the fish are dying, the shrimp's gonna die because they ain't got nothing to eat. Crabs are going to die because they ain't got nothing to eat. So during the BP, it just killed a lot of stuff. Today, the men are trawling for shrimp. Bo's Uncle Ernie hauls in a long net that's floating behind the boat. Only a handful of shrimp are caught in the mesh. And slowly picking back up. But we really didn't have no good of it. We had a right shrimp season, but not the best. You ready to go? Speed up a little bit. The challenges facing the Homa didn't start with Deepwater Horizon. Since the 1930s, oil companies have dredged thousands of miles of canals for pipelines through the wetlands, destroying natural barriers that separated freshwater marshes and saltwater from the Gulf. As the saltwater encroaches, it kills plants and erodes the land. Bo's grandpa, Nacy, has been fishing and hunting here since he was nine years old. Now he's 67 and has lost his voice. He scrawls something on a notepad and hands it to a community organizer, David Goth, who's accompanied us today. As Goth reads his words, Nacy gestures with his cane. The gentleman said, that used to be land. We used to trap for animals on the land. Now we fish for crabs in that same spot. 
Nacy uses his hands to show that the bayou used to be only a little wider than his boat. Now the distance between the tall marsh grasses on either side of the waterway is at least three times as wide. Right up here where we had an island of 124 families 30, 25, 30 years ago, it's right out here. And uh, y'all can see it from here. And now on that same island, there's 24 families left. Every time something happens, a hurricane, they lose something, they move it further north, further north, further north. If the Homa were a sovereign nation, like many Native American tribes, they might have more resources to mitigate the rising sea levels, hurricanes, and oil spills that threaten their land and their way of life. But the federal government has never recognized the Homa as a tribe. When the Homa submitted a petition for federal recognition in 1985, it took nine years for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, to process their request, and then it was denied. The Homa filed an appeal in 1996, which is still pending nearly two decades later. Federal recognition would bring uh, that benefit to our tribe where the tribe could be self-sustaining. United Homa Nation Chief Thomas Dardard. Uh, then all these other uh, issues, coastal erosion, coastal land loss. We would have, we'd be at the table with a, with a stronger voice and we could levy some of the dollars that we'd be receiving to, to better uh, build resiliency for our coastal communities. The United Homa Nation currently operates as a nonprofit, relying on grants and donations. Chief Dardar says that presented a problem for the tribe in the wake of the Deepwater Horizon spill. In the first year and a half after the disaster, BP paid more than $6.2 billion to those who were affected. People had to apply for the money, and the claims process involved lots of complicated paperwork. Our education level in the tribe, uh, you know, being that education wasn't afforded to us until the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of our elders and, our, and some of our young people, you know, uh, don't read and write that well, so they came to us to put it together for them, help them out. The Tribal Council applied for $160,000 so they could have the staff and resources necessary to help thousands of HOMA members file claims for lost income, health effects, and environmental damages. And finally we got a notice in the mail and said, look, although we respect and cherish the relationship we have, uh, we can't do nothing for you because you're not fairly recognized. The irony here is that oil companies themselves are partly to blame for the fact that the HOMA aren't federally recognized. It was called the uh, Louisiana Land and Exploration Company. And, and this is a big, you know, oil interest. Mark Miller is a history professor at Southern Utah University who has published two books about the federal acknowledgement process. In 1990, while the Homa's petition was first pending, several Louisiana congressmen introduced bills in both the U.S. House and Senate to afford the tribe federal recognition without having to go through the BIA. In his research, Miller discovered that the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company fought hard against the legislation. You know, I found a whole, you know, folder of documentation where they were challenging the validity of the Homa Indians, both as they said they were never a tribe, which is one facet, but then they, I, I found they were calling them the so-called Homa Indians, you know, in those documents. They also made it really clear to these congressmen and also the federal government that they were reviewing the, the petition material from the, the UHN 
they were taking depositions to challenge their identity, and they were you know, really raising the stakes. The pressure worked. Both bills died in committee. Six years later, Congressman Billy Tozen reintroduced his HOMA Recognition Act, only this time it came with a long list of exemptions that prevented the tribe from claiming land rights that would conflict with oil company interests. Even that bill didn't go anywhere. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, Tozen received more than $600,000 in donations from the oil and gas industry, and that doesn't include his first nine years in office. Miller also says the BIA has been unusually slow, even for a flawed bureaucracy, in reviewing the HOMA's petition, especially considering the strength of the HOMA's case. The state of Louisiana recognizes the HOMA as a tribe, and numerous records document the tribe's history as far back as the 17th century. As night falls on the Dulac Community Center, a Zydeco band is tuning up in the gymnasium where Monique Verdan just screened her documentary, My Louisiana Love. The film traces the long history of injustice behind the challenges her people are facing today. Years ago, one of her relatives stood with a shotgun and stopped the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company from plowing through a Homa burial ground the same burial ground that's sinking into the sea today. BP really was like the sucker punch of like, this is not going away, it's just getting bigger. It's becoming a bigger problem. Um, And so, you know, I think that one of the big questions for the Homa is um, what happens when our communities no longer exist? And if we do have to leave, What do we take with us? And what do we make sure that we protect? Is it those burial grounds? You know, is it our filet that we put in our gumbo? Is it, you know, is it our language? What is it? Um, What's most important and valuable? And I think that that's, as a people, we will have to decide that or it will be decided for us. The Homa are fighting hard to control the fate of their land and culture. Meanwhile, the BIA has committed to revamping its federal acknowledgement process, but so far the agency hasn't set a new timeline for making a decision on the Homa's 30-year-old petition. From Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, for Making Contact, I'm Anna Simonton. You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. We reached out to BP, but they declined an interview request for this show. Joining us now is author, analyst, and oil industry expert Antonia Yuhas. She's been following BP since even before the Deepwater Horizon spill, going back to her 2008 book, The Tyranny of Oil, the World's Most Powerful Industry and What We Must Do to Stop It. Antonia, welcome back to Making Contact. Thanks for having me. So we're speaking just about five years after the Gulf Coast BP spill. Uh, Paint a picture for us. How does it look down there environmentally and also in terms of human and economic impact? Has the area recovered? Um, The area certainly hasn't recovered. It's hard to paint one picture, though, of the Gulf of Mexico. I think most people don't appreciate 
how big of an area we're talking about. And so there's sort of every impact that you can imagine. Um, There are areas of extreme economic devastation, extreme environmental uh, devastation, um, places where the amount of oysters that come in from the dock is 75% less than it was before the oil spill. Communities of fisher folk that haven't recovered at all are just gone from the Gulf of Mexico. People in areas with extreme um, human health consequences. And then there are areas that are, you know, recovering, that are economically recovered and and people whose health has recovered. Um, You can go and see beautiful beaches. You can also go and see beaches with tarballs, with oil tarballs. I mean, we're we're probably, just like with the Exxon Valdez, for decades still be trying to pick up the pieces and understand the consequences. And just like Exxon Valdez, they will be devastating for decades. But it doesn't mean that people shouldn't go to Alaska. It doesn't mean that people aren't still living in Alaska. Um, and it doesn't mean that people shouldn't appreciate the Gulf of Mexico. So I think that both the trauma and the ongoing trauma of the disaster are important to look at. And the reality that this is still a beautiful part of the United States are important to keep in mind. So in that partial recovery, how has BP done in terms of making things right, making people whole, cleaning up uh, the natural habitat, both through their own goodwill and and also being forced to through uh, legal means and lawsuits? So one very good thing that happened was that in the wake of the Valdez, there was a new piece of legislation passed. That's something that we haven't done basically at all, except for one piece of legislation um, since the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Something called the Oil Pollution Act was passed in in the wake of the Valdez. And the Oil Pollution Act required for the first time that the polluter had to pay. And BP had a lot of requirements put on it that made it so that the company had to be in charge of cleanup, of stopping the blowout at the source of the disaster, um, had to be ready to do lots of things. It wasn't ready to do most of those things, but it was required to do a lot of things it wouldn't have otherwise done. That said, BP has also fought every step of the way. It's fought the economic settlement that it agreed to all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, There is a a really historic change that happened, which was that BP was forced to agree to a human health benefits settlement, which said, which acknowledged that exposure to oil and exposure to the dispersants does have human health consequences. 200,000 people were eligible for that settlement, but BP has fought very aggressively against that settlement after signing it. So 200,000 people were eligible, only 10,000 people have even put in an application of that 148 have received payment which is shocking and what about bp's public image they were suffering for a while there uh, we remember the spill cam the live cam of uh, oil spewing in under the ocean the company ceo stepped down since then what have they done pr wise to help build their image back up and and do you think it's worked I don't think BP has succeeded in saving its image, but I do think that it has succeeded in convincing most of the public that everything's back to normal in the Gulf of Mexico and that they did the best that they could and that it's you know well past time to move on. In the Gulf of Mexico, BP is 
back in the Gulf of Mexico. They never stopped. One of the very first new leases signed after the Deepwater Horizon disaster was for BP. Um, they have more rigs operating the Gulf now than they did before the disaster. And their size obviously allows them to influence regulators as well. Um, how how has the federal government and, and state of Louisiana done uh, in terms of holding BP accountable? And has there been any sort of changed approach to regulating uh, offshore drilling or other aspects of the oil industry? Or, or is this just going to happen again? Yeah, there's been... Um, Basically, no change in in regulations in the offshore drilling industry. The good news is we have more regulators. Now, hopefully, what they will do is actually write some regulations that they can enforce that will stop this from happening. But I don't have a lot of faith with that. So deep water drilling is getting, um, it's always been very dangerous and risky, but they're just going further and further out. Wherever there is oil is where they will go. And they're going hundreds of miles further out into the Gulf and thousands of feet deeper. And we haven't required regulations to hold them into check, and we're not giving regulators the tools to deal with it either. None of this is worth the risk, particularly when we're at a stage in history where we're being told very clearly, at a minimum, three-fourths of all fossil fuels need to stay in the ground if we're going to avert the worst of climate crisis. Given that knowledge, shouldn't we put the most just ridiculously risky forms of extracting oil off the table, and while we're still dependent on it, stick to the stuff we actually know how to do? Oil industry analyst Antonia Juhas is author of several books, including Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill, and The Tyranny of Oil, the World's Most Powerful Industry, and what we must do to stop it. She also has an article coming out in Harper's Magazine soon based on her time in a submarine under the Gulf of Mexico last year to check up on the effects of the Deepwater Horizon spill. We'll link to her website, antoniauhas.net, at our website, radioproject.org. Thanks so much for spending the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. It's been five years since the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and on this show we've been hearing about the lasting impacts of BP's oil spill. No one from BP was willing to speak with us for this show. For our next story, we go to the company's corporate hometown, London, England. For the past decade, going back even before the Gulf Coast spill, a coalition of artists has been subverting the oil giant's efforts to greenwash its reputation through sponsorship of the arts, and specifically the Tate, one of the most highly regarded art institutions in the world. BP had the worst accidental oil spill in history, this devastating disaster. While that spill was still ongoing and BP was unable to plug it in in any way, 
Kate decided in June in 2010 to hold a party to celebrate 20 years of BP sponsorship. And we felt like this, you know, this shouldn't happen without comment. I'm Mel Evans. I'm the author of Artwash, Big Oil and the Arts. BP and Shell have sponsored the arts um, in the UK, really predominantly focusing on cultural institutions in London, the capital city, for um, between them sort of 10 and and 30 years now. And in 2010, um, a group, a new group emerged called Liberate Tape that I'm part of. And we'd begun to, to specifically focus on Tate's relationship with BP because Tate is such a global name and it's such an influential kind of figure in the global art world. And it also presents itself as this very kind of politically progressive persona, which doesn't sit very easily with the corporate criminal BP. That Tate would hold what is a a very kind of elite party at the same time as that spill was ongoing seemed wildly insensitive there was a there was a big reaction within different artist communities in the city and a group of artists kind of got together and decided to arrange a kind of uh, kind of picket at the start of the party what do we want liberate when do we want it now people go to that party from really the kind of upper echelons of british society there was a sort of uh, alexander thin who's the marquess of bath he's also an artist who was in attendance and, you know, the party was celebrating BP sponsorship. So Lord John Brown, the um, ex-CEO of BP, who is now the chair of trustees at Tate, would have been there at the kind of the centre of the party. And we're, we're at Tate Britain, which is on the Thames Riverbank. So looking out, looking out across the water as well. As the guests arrived and, and went in the, the main entrance, Twelve figures um, wearing black veils and all dressed in black, carrying um, large barrels with the BP logo on them, poured this thick black oily substance down the slope of the main entrance. And then meanwhile, myself and another performer who'd... uh, able to access some tickets to the party they just arrived in our arrived in our hands by special means um we had gone inside the party and we were wearing these very large bouffant flowery dresses and the bouffant of the skirts of the dresses had a a very practical function which was to hide the massive rubble sacks filled with a, a black oily substance that we were carrying in that we were sneaking into the gallery and we we walked to the centre of the champagne reception and we spilled this oil right in the middle, right in the middle of the centre of the, of the party. Considering the size of this gallery. So we made the spill like BP did and then we then started to clean it up and we echoed the words of Tony Hayward who people will probably remember very insensitively after the spill said, it's really just a drop in the ocean, it's not so big at all. Um, and we likewise commented that our spill was compared to the size of the whole gallery really just a drop in the ocean here safely okay. to make sure that you're not treading it everywhere and you don't slip right because it's very slippery it is 
And so we continue to, to clean it up as part of this performance, effectively spreading it out across the sort of glossy marble of the floor. Um, we used our shoes. We wore these kind of BP ponchos to protect us, protective gear. And as we sort of used the oil to kind of spread the performance outwards, the security staff then also came and brought up these barriers to contain the spill. And we and we thanked them for that, um, for containing the spill for us. We've been trying to contain this leak up till now. And uh, this, this really helps us out, actually. Those performances drew a lot of attention to the issue at the time. And since then, a whole range of new groups have emerged um, in the UK and actually also in Norway and Canada and Brazil, who are all um, using performance to challenge oil sponsorship of the arts. For BP and Shell and ExxonMobil and Chevron like them, this sponsorship is fundamental to their business model. They need some way of covering up the harm that they cause on a daily basis all around the world. And the position in association with, you know, different countries' most loved public museums and galleries, you know, the holding place of history and culture for all these different countries is it's massively prestigious and desirable for them to have this association. Whether or not, you know, their consumers actually go and visit these galleries or not, it's about that knowledge and that awareness and that particular targeting of what the PR industry calls special publics. So kind of elite political and media types and the awareness in the eyes of those special publics that these companies have an association with the prestigious cultural institutions is massively important to them to maintain that that thing that the the PR industry again calls a social license to operate so a kind of guise of social acceptability this is a very bad publicity stunt i disapprove of this I hope you want to build your protest in a different way this does not have popular support you can make your point differently so a lot of the groups um, within the Art Not Oil network are making performance interventions for a whole number of, of strategic reasons. I mean, first and foremost, these groups are made up of artists and performers who want to take action on this issue because they have a stakeholding in these art space, you know, these public spaces of creativity um, and in the kind of you know, the sort of ethical standards that are acceptable within that kind of wider artistic community. So I think that's, you know, that's partly where it's coming from. And then it's also about mimicking the form of the institution in order to call it to account. Anyone else here who's interested? Uh, this, this is a free tour. It's going to be a short talk about this painting here. This painting shows Ellen Terry playing the role of Lady Macbeth. And it's also very appropriate for the Tate Gallery today because it's pretty much the same colour green as in the BP logo. And what it means is that, you know, all these performances are taking place inside the galleries and museums. They're not um, on the steps outside, they're not at the entrances. They're really going right inside these spaces and opening up this dialogue with visitors and with staff around what is acceptable inside those spaces. When shall BP meet again? In Tarzan. Oil spills, toxic rain. When the sponsorship is done, PR battle fought and won. That will be a 
2014. Where's the place? The Tate Gallery. Because that's exactly where the sponsors are. You know, you go into these galleries and you see BP embossed upon the walls at every turn. And that's the problem, is that these sort of small logos have massive, massive effects. And by being engraved into the walls, BP benefits from so much cultural license, social acceptability, that it really doesn't deserve. So that's why um, the group see it as important to, to go in there and to, and to challenge that and to um, make uneasy that uh, position of the sponsor within the gallery. That was Mel Evans, author of Art Wash, Big Oil in the Arts. That story was told to producer George Lavender, and thanks to UNI Films for use of some of their recordings. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To see videos of some of Art Not Oil's actions, or to learn about any of the people you heard in this show, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Laura Flynn, Jasmine Lopez, Quan Booth, George Lavender, and Rochelle Robinson. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. I'm George Lavender, one of the producers of the show. We always want to hear from you. Tips, comments, criticisms. What did you think of the show? What do you want to hear more about? Email us at makingcontact at radioproject.org. We're also tweeting at making underscore contact. And you can send us a message on Facebook. Just look for Making Contact. Thanks a lot.